good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. I want to commence a new series of studies in the Word of God tonight. I'm going to turn to 1 Kings 19 to begin that new series. We're going to look at something of the life and times of Elisha. So I want to set the scene for that tonight. And so to do that, let's read in the Word of God this evening from 1 Kings 19 and from the verse number 15. In the context, I just to perhaps give you some setting of the immediate context, it's the time, the chapter following Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal have been shown to be false and they've been destroyed at the hand of Elijah. Uh, And yet in chapter 19, we find Elijah being uh, threatened again by Jezebel. And nothing has changed in her heart or Ahab's heart. And Elijah finds himself at a time where he's called by God to come to Horeb. Uh, And there, Lord asks him, what's he doing there in Horeb? And it's in that context, the Lord then gives him instructions. And we're going to read those instructions now from the verse number 15. And the Lord said unto him, that is Elijah, and go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Ebelmehola, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. And yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. And so he departed thence and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah, Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. And then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Amen. May God bless his word again to your hearts tonight. It's a question that often comes to the heart of the uh, the genuine believer. As they contemplate the world in which they live, they may ask themselves the question, where is is God when the times are dark and wickedness abounds? When you survey the history of this world, there have been many such times. You think of the days of Noah, they're described as days when the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The dark ages marked by gross religious superstition, by inhumanity of man to man. The days just before the Reformation, the days prior to the evangelical awakening when Whitfield and Wesley, etc. saw revival blessing. These were all times marked by great wickedness. And at such times the people of God may wonder, where, where is God in it all? We're going to take some time to look at the life and times of Elisha. And as we do so, it's important to set the scene and to realize that Elisha comes into history 
to the page of the Word of God at a time when there is great darkness, spiritual darkness in the land. He's here in 1 Kings 19, and I want to just take some time to remind you of the setting into which Elisha comes. Of course, the king at this time is still King Ahab. That's important to remember. You look back, please, at chapter 16 of 1 Kings, and you will see at the verse 29 of 1 Kings 16, we have the beginning of the account regarding Ahab's reign. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And verse, 20, or verse 30 gives us the, and the fearful words, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebadi, takes Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbeel, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse number 30. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And so the times of Ahab are times that are marked by great religious declension and apostasy. Marked by the worship of a multiplicity of false gods. We, we, we shouldn't think of Baal as one god. Baal is a term for, again, a numerous number of deities. They often had an associated title with them. And you'll find different names used for uh, the gods associated with Baal. So it was, a, it was a catch-all term for false worship. Many names for Baal gods. Not one god like Jehovah. And so Ahab's reign is being marked by declension and apostasy. Departure from the worship of the one true and living God. Of course, in essence, idolatry is worshipping anything other than the one true and living God. Whatever we may hold as the chief place in our affections, that is, that is to be guilty of idolatry. It is very sobering to think about Ahab's reign in light of what he ought to have been in the sight of God. Back in Deuteronomy 17, there's instructions given by the Lord to Moses regarding the, the nature of a, of a godly king. And they were, as part of their, as you like, if their ordination into the, into the kingship, they were to write the law of God out. It says in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17, And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. This was for the king. That he was not to be above the brethren, but rather he was to be humble, and he was to promote and practice true godliness. And yet for Ahab in 1 Kings 16, it says that it was a light thing for him to walk in these sins. The sins of Jeroboam, a light thing. Faithfulness to God is nothing to be taken too seriously. I think we all hear that sort of language today. You know, you're, you're far too serious about your religion. Perhaps children say it to parents. They don't say it, perhaps they think it. 
You know, the religion's just far, far too important in our family. It doesn't need to be so important. But fine, you want to have some religion, that's fine. But just don't make it such an important thing in our house or in our lives. And that's, that's the sense of Ahab here. It was a light thing. A light thing for him to turn the people away to false gods. If you study the chronology of these times, it's less than 60 years since Solomon. So, been 10 kings... But bit by bit, they've been turning away from the true God. You, you look back to 1 Kings 12. And we're just setting the scene here to understand that Elisha is coming into history at a particular time, a very important juncture in the history of God's people. And in 1 Kings 12, uh, of course, you have the, uh, the kingdom divided. And there is a splitting of the kingdom. And then you have the sins of Jeroboam that are referred to in 1 Kings 16 in the reign of Ahab. And in Jeroboam, it says in verse 25 of chapter 12, he built Shechem and Mount Ephraim and dwelt there and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. And so Jeroboam is concerned here. He's, he's looking after the northern kingdoms. He's worried that they're all going to follow back into the king of Judah and restore to the house of David. And he's concerned. Therefore, verse 28, he took counsel, made two calves of gold and sent to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship for the one even unto Dan. And you can read the rest of the history. But what is, what is significant? I wonder, do you notice the words of verse number 28? Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Can you think back where you heard that in the word of God? Uh, in a prior time, it was... Of course, in the wilderness. And it was the words of Aaron in the erection of the golden calf. And as Aaron encouraged the people to worship golden calves, he said, Behold thy gods, O Israel. Now, the word gods is the word Elohim. It's plural, yes. It's a plural form for God, singular. But of course, it's also the name of God given to us in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim. And so there are many, and I would take this view myself, that are, would see that what Jeroboam is doing here was not suggesting that the two calves were actually the physical gods that brought the people out of Egypt. But rather what he was suggesting was that these false gods, these false idols, were to be worshipped as if they were the one true gods. It's a departure to idolatry, but still advocating the worship of Elohim. And so there's a, a slight departure, a slight deviation away from true worship. And there's now the practice of idolatry. And there's a practice of, of raising of these images that were, again, against the law of God. But at this point, Jeroboam is not advocating Baal worship. But what happens is you get one king who takes a one degree departure or two degree departure or whatever degree you want away from the straight line and he puts the nation on a path towards gross idolatry. And what we learn from this is that again we must be aware that slight departures from truth set the church on a tangent far, far away from the word of God. 
We move slightly at this day, and in 10 years' time, who knows where we'll be in the house of God. And so it was here, within 60 years, they had gone from Jeroboam's compromise to Ahab's outright apostasy. And so we find ourselves in Elisha's life, and he's coming at the point of time that the nation has gone far away from the truth of God. And yet in this time, we must note that Ahab is a very popular king. He reigns 22 years. You have that in the chapter 16 of his reign. And Ahab, he did reign 22 years over Israel and Samaria. What is more, he was popular as there were only 7,000 who were part of the no-bended-knee party. Small group in light of the vast nation. Ahab, had there been an election, would have come in with a, a roaring majority. And in such a climate, God sends Elijah. That's what chapter 17 begins with. Out of nowhere, as it were, of course, in God's providence, but out of nowhere, God sends Elijah. Verse 1 of chapter 17, and Elijah the Tishbite. And you will know much of the story of Elijah's life. Ahab witnesses judgment. There's no rain. Ahab witnesses the power of God in the fire that comes upon Mount Carmel. Ahab witnesses the mercy of God in the rains being restored. And, and yet, yet, nothing changes. The people make a profession. The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. They cry that on Mount Carmel. But when you get to chapter 19, it is clear that these outward professions have not been accompanied with a change of heart. And Ahab and Jezebel are as evil as they were, despite having the clear revelation of the word of God and the power of God. What a fearful thing it is to be an eyewitness to the events of Carmel and yet still deny the true and living God. The hardness of the human heart. Do you wonder why we should pray? Do you wonder why we should really cry unto God for the salvation of souls? Because the heart of the sinner is so hard that they will not accept the clear evidence and turn to Christ. That no matter how clearly the gospel is presented, no matter how strong the evidence, they are still in the hardness of their hearts. They are bent on turning away from God. And so it was for Ahab and Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, uh, she sends this threat to Elijah, verse number 2. Uh, Let the gods do to me and more also if I... Make not thy life as a life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She's going to take Elijah's life. And he finds himself uh, moving away from uh, to, to Beersheba, verse number 3, and a day's journey into the wilderness in verse number 4. He comes to the point where in the days of darkness he wonders, where is the Lord? I told you I'm going to preach on Elisha. But to understand Elisha's entry into time, you need to appreciate that Elijah has gone through this period of his ministry, being used of God to manifest the truth of the gospel on Mount Carmel, and yet at the same time he finds himself, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my fathers. Jezebel's still in power. Ahab's still unrepentant. And the people are still rebellious. Verse 14 of chapter 19. Uh, Elijah says, I've been very jealous, the Lord God of hosts, 
Because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down, and altered and slain thy promise with the sword. People of God, despite Carmel and despite their professions, they are still they are still determined to break the covenant of God. And where is the Lord in it all? And in the context of this darkness, Elisha's life bears testimony to what the Lord is doing and where the Lord is in such times. Do we not see? Do we not see this nation and the professed church? Do we not see the church in a tangent away from truth and towards error? Do we not see there's a a greatening and an advancing of the uh, materialism and the idolatry of this day? Is there not much to learn from Elisha's life and witness and in light of the context that he finds himself in? Where, where is God at this time? Well, let me begin to suggest to you by the beginning that God is still in control. And that's where it starts. Verse 15, the Lord said unto him, go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. Now we need to appreciate something of the context here regarding Elijah's experience. As he's in Beersheba, uh, he's Beersheba, he's, yes, he's discouraged. Nothing's changing. In essence, verse number four is Elijah's profession that his ministry is over. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. This is not a suicidal prophet. But rather, it is the conviction of his heart that he has done all he could do and he has not done any better than his father's. Now, back in chapter 17, or back, back in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, Elijah at Mount Carmel says, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord, verse 22. The prophets have been killed, they've been slain by Ahab and Jezebel, and now Elijah finds himself as the last prophet. And as he reflects upon Mount Carmel and sees a lack of real change, he says, I've done all I can do. I've done no better than my fathers who went before me. They, again, remember the last 60 years has been an, an increasing level of apostasy. Don't we have the same experience? This church has been going for 40 years. It's a generation. It's a biblical generation. And have we done better than our fathers? Those who founded this work? Those who had a vision for the gospel and what, what happens? Oh, well, are we any better than our fathers? And so Elijah finds himself in this discouragement. And so people have, people have laid all sorts of charges against Elijah here. He's, he's running away in fear and unbelief. He's scared of this woman Jezebel and people poke fun at Elijah. It's terrible what they say about him. But what actually you must understand in light of the word, the Lord comes to him via the angel of the Lord, Christ himself, I believe, tells him to arise and eat because God has a journey for him that is yet further away from Jezebel. So Elijah is not running from Jezebel against the will of God, but in the will of God. And do you know where God brings Elijah to? God brings Elijah to Horeb, the Mount of God. The other name for Sinai. He brings Elijah back to the same place as he made covenant with the people through the work of Moses. And so Elijah comes to the same place and God says to him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And what do people understand from that? They say, well, God's rebuking Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? You should be somewhere else. That's a gross misreading of the word of God. 
He's here because God gave him food to bring him here. He's at Horeb because God wants him at Horeb. And what's Elijah going to do at Horeb? He's going to do what God's prophet has to do. And that is he's going to bring the words of judgment against the people. And that's what he does. Verse 10. I have been very jealous of the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. He's bringing a charge. He's acting as a prophetic judge of the people. They've been guilty of breaking the covenant. Where is he? He's back at Horeb. He's back where the covenant all began with Moses. He's back there and he's bringing the charge against the people of God for their sins and for their wickedness. And so God comes and speaks to him, invites him. The, the parallels, I encourage you, take some time to study the parallels of 1 Kings uh, 19 with Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Moses in a cliff. He's hidden here, Elijah. He's in a cave. And God's speaking with a still small voice of his tenderness. And he repeats, verse 13, What doest thou here, Elijah? And Elijah says again, I've been very jealous, the Lord God of hosts. And he repeats the charge against the people for their covenant breaking. And what does God then do? This is the important thing. God says to him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And, and I'm supplying the word, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Elijah's lament here is, is not of an oppressed soul, but of a biblical realist bringing the word of judgment against the people. And God's response is to indicate that he's still in control. And he does so by instructing Elijah to anoint three men. Two kings, one foreign, one Jewish, and one prophet. The idea of them being anointed at the command of God indicates that God had a purpose for these men. Haziel, he was going to be used as God's instrument Against the people's backsliding. Second Kings chapter 8. And there is the incident, we'll see it later on in our studies, with Elijah, Elisha and Haziel. And Haziel's been sick. And Elisha then goes on to say what Haziel's going to do. And he says in verse number 12 of Second Kings 8, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and will dice their children, and rip up their womb with child. Don't you see what's happening here? Elijah's saying, your people have broken covenant. And God says, yes, I know. I, I know, and I'm going to deal with it through the instrumentality of Haziel. God's going to chasten his people, those he loves. He's going to chasten. Jehu his task was to deal with the house of Ahab. In 2 Kings 9, you read about what happens with Jehu's reign. He deals with Jehoram. He lives with Jezebel. And you'll find in 2 Kings 9 all the things that Jehu does. You see, God's word to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 sets the scene for the subsequent years. These are going to be years of chastisement. Years where God's going to bring judgment upon our wicked, covenant-breaking people. And yet in the midst of all the judgments, you then have the words, And Elisha shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Elisha is also named here as a deliverer of judgment. 
Or we're not told that ever use a sword. His judgment comes from the word of God. Significant that his anointing is then the only one that's mentioned in verse 19 uh, through 21 of 1 Kings 19. It's the primacy of the preaching of the word of God as God's means of judgment upon sin. The means whereby God delivers his messages of judgments through the word of God. Hosea 6 verse 5 could describe Elisha what it says there, Therefore I have hewed them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. God's in control here. Though Ahab reigns, though Jezebel is wicked and threatening judgment and wrath upon Elijah, God is still on the throne. He's raising kings to bring punishment upon the wickedness of the people. And he's bringing a prophet to deliver the word of God. What does God do in dark days? Well, he judges sin. I understand that this nation is not covenant Israel. But you read the word of God and you read particularly books like Ezekiel and Daniel. And you read books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and you will see there that God, he's a God who judges wickedness. Not just in hell, but on earth. And in dark days, in wicked times, we will see that God comes and judges sin. But God also in such times is pleased to continue to raise up mouthpieces who will bring the word of prophetic judgment against the nations. So God does. God's not lost control of the situation. He's still got things under control. So I'm just setting the scene tonight. We see something of the introduction of Elisha. God is still in control. The next time we'll come back and we'll see that God is still preserving his cause. There are these 7,000 that we should look at. We will see that God, not only, not only does God bring judgment, but God also brings mercy. Elisha the name means God is salvation, salvation of God. Elisha is a tremendous type of Christ. That in dark days, whilst God will rain down judgment, God still offers mercy in the preaching of the word. I think these are things that ought to encourage us. As yet, we still do not have a famine of the hearing of the word. God in his mercy is still working Offering mercy, offering grace, as well as threatening judgment. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.